Hello, this is Derek Duncan, and welcome back into the salon for another discussion of golf course architecture. This is Volume 5, brought to you by the good folks at Golf Digest, and you'll be listening to me and co-host golf course builder Jim Urbina in discussion with architect Mike DeVries. Hopefully you are all remaining safe and healthy and sane during this strange time. As I've said before, we're trying to make the most of it, for as long as it lasts, by gathering unique voices together to have in-depth conversations about golf design. We hope you're finding these as engaging and entertaining as Jim and I do. Please give us feedback on what you think of the salon, and you can do that on Twitter, follow me at FeedTheBall, or you can email me at Derek underscore Duncan at Discovery.com. In the last volume, if you haven't listened yet, we spoke to Thad Layton of Arnold Palmer Design Company about what Palmer prioritized in design and how the company has evolved in recent years. In this volume, Jim and I are going to discuss with Mike DeVries all aspects, or at least some aspects, of routing the golf course, how he's handled certain situations that arose at various sites, and what his routing priorities are on any given project. I think you'll find this subject matter and this conversation highly enlightening. Let's move forward with some initial thoughts from Urbina and I about routing and the talk we're going to have. You know, Derek talking about routings and we're going to talk to Mike DeVries today about those every golden age architect had a different take on what was important in the routing and if you don't mind could I read a quote from Mr. Donald Ross on his design standards I wouldn't mind at all quote these are my standings to laying out a golf course make each hole present a different problem so arrange in that every stroke must be made with a full concentration and attention necessary to good golf. Build each hole in such a manner that it wastes none of the ground at my disposal and takes advantage of every possibility I can see, end quote. So that was Donald Ross's take, very simple, very simple in, its, in, its, in his thoughts about what was important in the routing how to build the golf course. And you know, Derek, every routing is different. Everything and everybody takes something different away from a routing. I would turn it back to you. What's the first thing that you look for when you say, wow, that was a good routing? What Can you define what a good routing is? No. I've always thought that you could spot a poor routing or routing that doesn't work. I think most people, if you're they're paying attention, can sense that when you're on a golf course. If things just don't align, or obviously if the distances between holes are too great, or there's a lot of backtracking, things like that are pretty obvious. But to say what makes a routing good, you start to use a lot of words that don't have meanings like it's... it's um, you know, it just feels right. You say things like that, you know, so in a way, I think great routings, you could try to be technical and define what they are. You could say they solve problems, they utilize land features, but really it's, it's almost something ineffable about great routings. And, you know, we're going to spend a lot of time talking to Mike DeVries about routings. He has some great experiences. He's had some really interesting properties to route golf courses on. So I know he's going to share his thoughts on it. But it's such, isn't it, Jim, isn't it such a massive topic? In some ways, isn't routing a golf course the granddaddy of all golf architecture topics? Well, 
there are some architects who thrive on getting the routing right. And to be fair to Alistair McKenzie, he went to Australia and he laid out several golf courses and he never saw them finished, Derek. A lot of people don't know that. He never saw them finished. So if Royal Melbourne is the highlight of Ms. Mc Alistair McKenzie's gift to Australia, and the routing was so good that anybody could build it, and I say that in quotes, anybody, that once the routing was set, that Somebody who had never understood golf design could, but understood how to build a golf course could go ahead and build this golf course. And if the routing was so good, as some people have said about Royal Melbourne, then anybody could build it. And then McKenzie would be considered the hero that he had laid this golf course out and, and, and somebody else had built it. And 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 the key to a good golf course is the routing. It doesn't matter what the greens look like or the bunkers look like or the mowing lines, how they're presented or the yardage and how the plays and how it plays. But if the routing is right, then it must be destined to be a good golf course. And I struggle with that. I really do. I think it's more than just the routing, but. A lot of people, a lot of golf course architects, designers believe that if the routing's right, you can't mess it up. And I'm not so sure. Yeah, I, I wouldn't. I certainly couldn't speak with authority about Royal Melbourne. I, we know that McKinsey was in Australia for a, you know a matter of months in one year and left behind routings at different places. And Mick Morcom and Alex Russell in Australia, competent uh, grounds people executed the plans but if if i guess if mckinsey routes the golf course and he's he puts places the greens on such natural landforms or in such ideal places for greens and has landing areas that are set on natural slopes and teeing areas that are that are visible it, it almost sounds it does almost sound like a, he left behind a set of blueprints or a, an instruction manual on how to execute that build you know, if you if the land is so good and you place the features via a routing so appropriately, maybe that does make it easier. But you see, the part I struggle with is that every golf course builder, when you talk to Bill Coor, he was out massaging the 14th green at the Sandhills. And yes, Bill and Ben got the routing right at Sandhills. But still, that next level, that next layer of the greens and how good they could be and Bill's extra efforts in that last one inch or Ben's extra effort turning the green at just the perfect angle. Even if the routing left the green site, as you said, with a construction document blueprint that says put green A here, I can't imagine that it would be perfect if he just threw a green there, any green. Mick Markham just threw any green there and just said, ah, that's good. Mm -hmm. uh, that's good. Alistair will love that. That's my dilemma. That's what I struggle with. Is routing really so, so 100% proof that you'll get it right if you get the routing? I think it's more than that. But 
we can debate this until the cows come home. No, definitely. I think it's got to be more than that. You need a, a everything has to for the golf course to be great. It all has to work, in, including the, the shaping and the fine details. That last one inch of the surface of the green has to be just right too. But you started off with a quote from Ross, which I think is is appropriate. And the quote he talks about using land features. This ties into something that's happening this weekend, Jim. And uh, we're going to get to see some live golf again for the first time in a long time. With this, this exactly. I'm looking forward to it. Most people are. <laughs> it's a skins game involving four of the greatest players in golf: Dustin Johnson, Rory McIlroy, uh, Ricky Fowler, and Michael Wolf. I'm not here to to <laughs> to sell anything, but I'm no. just excited because it's being held at Seminole. And Seminole, I don't believe, has ever let anything like this onto the property, television cameras, a live televised event. Seminole is known as one of Donald Ross's greatest products. People speak often about how brilliantly the golf course, is, golf course was routed, utilizing the dunes on the, on the eastern seaboard side, the large 40-foot high ridge on the western side, stringing holes up and down them and in between. I'm curious to get your perspective. I think Seminole is, is undoubtedly a world-class golf course, one of the best in the world. But specifically as it pertains to the routing, is that something you look at as an architect and say, this is ingenious? Well, I've been very lucky to have walked it and played it. And so I think I learned more walking than I did playing, but... I had to put on the greens to solidify my thoughts about what I had just witnessed and walked. But, you know, it goes back to, to Ross's quote, build each hole in such a manner that it wastes none of the ground at my disposal. And Seminole does that exactly. It goes from high dune to high dune with a valley in between. And the valley holds holes number one and two, 10 and 11, and 15. But that's it. Every tee box, every green touches the dunes on the west side and the east side, with the final holes, 16, 17, and 18, being right on the sand bluff bordering the Atlantic Ocean. And when you watch it on TV, which very few people will get to see it ever. But when you watch it on TV, just think of every green site or every tee box being on a ridge line or a dune ridge. And that is Ross's quote exactly. Build each hole so that it wastes none of the ground. And Donald Ross did that at Seminole. He wasted no ground. He took the features that were important on the west side and on the east side, and maximize their usage. You won't get to understand the elevations until you walk it and play it. Uh, unbelievable golf course, so much fun to play, such an easy walk, and maximize the, the ground that Mr. Ross was given. This is another one of those unanswerable questions that I know you love. It's fascinating, though, to think about and everything you just said, I think, is, is exactly right. You know, the, the elevations are surprising. You know, you're getting up and down off these, these high points, down, up. You're playing uh, like the fifth, fifth hole is in sixth hole, play basically on the, along the top of one of the dunes. Yes. Um, what would 
another architect have done with that property. I mean, you have to utilize those dunes. You have they're part of the acreage. It's a, like a hundred and forty acre piece of land. There's not much room to spare. So you, I mean, wouldn't any competent architect have utilized those dunes in some fascinating, some ingenious way? Well, I, I would. You have to believe that they would have. I can't think of another site that is so, as you said, uh, uh, 150 acres of golf that maximizes those ridgelines. I don't suspect that anybody would have missed that. But for some reason, and it goes back to the routing and the green sites that go with it, it's not only the routing that maximizes the land that was given to him, but it's the green sites he put on that. It's the down and back up on 18. It's the high bluff on 17. It's that scary shot uh, on 13, T-box to the par 3. I just think to myself, everybody could have done this. But, Derek, it's easy to say everybody could have done it when you already see the map. Of course you could find the treasure when you've been given the map. Right. <laughs> How many people can't find the treasure? But that's the hard part, and that's the part that I struggle with in routings, is that once everybody plays it, the critics come out. Derek, that's, that's a fair statement. They come out. But Seminole maximized the land, it seems like everybody could have found that pot of gold that Ross found in that routing. But that's easy to say when you have the map. I'll be curious to see if everybody would say or feel the same way that I did, that it's a superior routing and that there could be done no better. You know, you could always try. Uh, Derek, you ought to give it a go. Pretend like you knew nothing about the golf course and maximize Dune Ridge to Dune Ridge. I'll be curious what you would come up with. Yeah, maybe I'll just get some a few bulldozers and some excavators and go give it a, give it a shot. <laughs> and the cool thing about it is, is that his golf course has a pretty good rhythm and flow to it. You know, remember I told you about throwing out the scorecard. Well, you know, Seminole kind of fits a nice pattern scorecard, something that you would see would be favorable with the par fives and the par threes. You know, it's got a, a, a balance, a par 36 on each side. So for Donald Ross, it was perfect. I'm curious. I'm curious if he had more land available to him, would it have turned out this way? Or was it just the perfect land, the perfect routing, the perfect outcome? Yeah, right. And of course, a lot of the part of the brilliance of Seminole is that it was a very difficult construction project. It was a swamp down in the middle there. So uh, it, it took somebody with undoubtedly a lot of vision and a lot of expertise like Ross to be able to get that site to work the way it does. And then you put a great routing on top of it and you've got, you know, a landmark American course. Now, Seminole is, is essentially like a, a square or trapezoidal shape of limited acreage. So in one way, I think routing a golf course for architects, that it poses challenges, but it also gives you limitations and a, a framework or a structure within which to work, which in some cases, I guess you could say, might be of assistance in making creative decisions. You have been on properties that were almost boundless. Ballyneal, uh, one of my favorite places for one, I'm imagining, unlike Seminole, there were countless ways 
that that golf course could have been routed. The, those chop hills are so unique. You know, the holes duck inside and outside those those dunes. What did you think when you saw that property for the first time and saw uh, just so many different directions you could go? Uh, distant vistas you did you weren't hemmed in by the sea or a road you know or a canal line or anything like that it was really a, a very very unique golf site what were you thinking well that's a that's a that's a good question that i've tried to answer but it's unanswerable and i'll tell you what i first went to the site years ago early 2000 on behalf of Renaissance Golf Design. The office had got a call from Rupert O'Neill, the landowner of the of the land south of Holyoke, Colorado, and said, I've seen what you guys have done at Pacific Dunes. My brother and I, Jim O'Neill, who's a golf pro at the Meadow Club in, in San Francisco, we saw what you've done at Pacific Dunes. We think we have land like that. Could you come and take a look? And so me being in Colorado, based in Denver, I drove out there one February day and I met Rupert O'Neill at his office in Holyoke. And as I looked out the, over the land, I thought, you know, I, I can't imagine that there's a good piece of land out here. I've driven by here several times on my way to Sand Hills. I don't remember any dunes, chop dunes. So I show up to Rupert's office we talked for a little while, and he says, you ready to go? And I said, yeah, let's go. So we headed south of town. By the way, do you know what the main street in Holyoke's name is? Did you ever know that? Uh, no, I don't recall. Is it Urbina Avenue? It's not Urbina Avenue. You flunked on that one, but nice try, <laughs> Derek. It is Interocean Avenue. I took a right off the highway onto Interocean Avenue or Street to go to Rupert's office, Main Street. Just a side bit, just just so you get a little clue about what I'm about to in, in, encounter. And so Rupert and I head south of town, and and we go out to Ballyneal on this on this farm road, and we're, we're and we're going down this road, and and he he cues it up perfectly. It's February. The sun doesn't get very high, and he says, I got these two uh, ATVs. We're going to jump on them and go tour the land. And I said, okay, and we suited up. It was cold out there. And we drove up this big, big hill, this big hill on the ATVs. And when we got to the top, I was looking out to the west, and I saw this unfolding of rippled dunes. And I thought, holy crap, what is this doing here? And Rupert said, wow, this is the chop dunes. And so we just stood up there for a while. And he says, I said, you own all this or this land's all available to you? And he said, yeah. And the sun was so low uh, in February that I could see the shadows of the dunes just popping out at me from four or five miles away. So we continued on down the slope into, into the dunes, and, and Rupert took me to the north, the north of where the what Bally Neal sits now. And he went to the north because he was so enamored with the size of the dunes. And we were going—you've been to Bally Neal, haven't you, Derek? I have, yes. 
You've never been north of Bally Neal, have you? Well, you come in from the north, but not, no. So if you go north of the third and fourth hole at at Bally Neal, the dunes get even bigger. And Rupert and I are traveling through these dunes on the ATV, and, and I'm like, Rupert, these dunes are too big. Oh, believe me, I was in awe. I was in awe, but these dunes were way too big to play golf on. They would be beautiful to look at, but too big to play golf on. I said, could we go farther south? He said, yeah, yeah. So I followed him, and we were working our way farther south. And I'm freezing by this time, Derek. I am freezing, so I'm so cold. And I said, Rupert, let's stop. And I knelt down by the motor of the, of the ATV, and I left it running so I could warm myself up. And just as I did that, little did I know that I was looking up this valley, this valley that was so perfect for golf, I couldn't believe it. And I said, Rupert, and we stood up from from the ATVs, and, and I said, Rupert, if you only build one hole, build this hole that we're looking down south, build this hole, and nobody will ever believe they're in Holyoke, Colorado. They'll think they're in the Irish lynx lands. And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, let's go. And we took off down this, this, this valley of dunes and it was spectacular. And I showed him where the green site could be. And there was these kind of natural little blowouts. And I thought this could be a hole. And Rupert goes, well, there's gotta be more of these, isn't there? And I said, well, yeah, there's gotta be more. And so we, we took off and we, and we started riding around an ATV. Now, remember I had no map to work from had no topo map but we were just discovering this land and the the land was so so expansive that we were just trying to cover as much ground as we could before sunset and i was going down another valley and another shot and another bowl and another green site and i was just going like this is nuts this is unbelievable and i said rupert you got some pretty good stuff here and i no don't get me wrong. I didn't. I didn't spill the beans. I didn't say it was the the hundred greatest golf courses ever built. But I said you got some golf holes here. But we gotta we gotta get a routing done. And he said, Well, you already said there was a hole down there. And I said, Yeah, that's one hole, Rupert. We got seventeen more to find. And so that was the start of developing a routing finding the holes and seeing things that were natural looking. And, you know, the, the eighth hole at Bally Neal, the first one I saw that ended up becoming the eighth hole, that was actually long enough to be a par five. Do you know how hard it is to find a par five on Lynx ground? Well, it, it is no, hard. I don't. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard because dunes and, and, and rumpled ground tend to be broken up so much. Right. It's hard to find a valley that you can squeeze a par five in. And I not only found that one, I found what ho- would end up being hole number 16. That, and I called it the, the kind of like the, like it was a, a gate to the to the green site. Right. Long, long hole going to the south. Goes to the left. The green, yep. Yes. Left, the and there's that little green sitting there. And I thought, here's the green right here, Rupert. And I'm like a, kiddie, a kid in a candy store. But you see, the routing hadn't been developed. I had only started to find some of the holes. And that's what I have to ask Mike DeVries about. Did you find the holes and then make a routing? Or did you lay out the routing and then see if you could find the holes within the routing? That 
is the hardest thing to do. It's not easy. And Bally Neal proved to me that you could find a couple holes. Now, how would you link them all together? So at, at Bally Neal, and we're going to jump into our conversation with Mike DeVries in just a moment. At, at Bally Neal, is there is there such a thing as a priority that you and Tom, and Tom, of course, Tom Doak, are thinking about? Is it linking holes together? Is it doing what Ross says, utilizing ground features, wasting no space, or simply just finding the most dynamic golf holes that you can? I know it's some combination of all, but is there an overriding thought that's going that's going into these discussions about how, how the course is going to be laid out and which areas you're going to utilize? Well, that's that's the dilemma because on my first visit before there was ever talk of golf, Rupert had no idea about a clubhouse. He had no idea about an entrance road. He had no idea about about um, what he was going to build cottages. He just wanted to know if the land was good enough for golf. And so that uh, that initial exploratory time was finding those holes. And now you had to link them together. And I I remember I remember going west. Uh, I don't know if you uh, hold number sixteen green site. You remember that green site there mm-hmm. on sixteen? Yeah. You could you could turn to the right and you could play four or five holes going that way, and come back and circle back around and end up on hole number thirteen. There's four or five holes out there that never got built. There's five or six holes over there by four and five that never got built, and so everybody wants to do that routing everybody wants to find that perfect layout but when you have 25 30 35 holes to choose from and then rupert doesn't even know where he's going to have a clubhouse all of those things play into how a routing gets determined where you start and where you finish and yes we could just keep going forever and ever but eventually you got to come back home. I keep talking about that. Come home or or you just you could get carried away with golf holes. Bally Neal had that. Countless holes. How do you link them back together? The routing, the key. And then after you get the routing, how do you build the best holes possible? Oh man, Derek, it's just so hard to put that all together. And people think it's easy, but it's not. I can see how it, how difficult it is on a site like Bally Neal, more so probably than, you know, a site like Seminole, but maybe I'm wrong about that. And I have a feeling that, that we're, we're going to get into that with Mike DeVries about how hard is it to walk away from holes? You know, how, how, how often do you think about the ones that got away? Cause I'm sure he's got some stories about the, just like those holes out on the, the flanks of Bally Neal that you couldn't get to. I'm sure he's had those experiences as well. I'm just telling you, the, the, the holes were endless at Belly Neal. The fourth hole, for example, could have easily gone to the north to another green site, but it was chosen to go to the to the south and to the green site it currently plays. But it could have gone to the to the to the north and up another valley. That was a cool hole. There's a hole past number seven, uh, seven green site, six green site. I'm sorry, six green sites, seven tees. There's a couple holes back to the west from there that are spectacular. But you see, you just have to put a, a finality to it. You have to finish it. You have to plant it. 
You have to grow it in. You, you have to play it. Otherwise, you're just going to keep going and going and going and nothing will ever get built. So it's the genius that puts those all together that makes it right. And it is a genius that does the routing. And, it's, and then it's the geniuses who build it and make it fit that routing and give it its character and give it all the, the soul that it needs to have, as, as Mr. John Ashford was so. Link's soul, putting it all together. It's so cool. It's so much fun. Uh, you see why I'm in the business. Absolutely. And, and um, you and Tom and the, the rest of the crew definitely got it right. Whatever, however difficult those decisions were, you got it right. You finished it at Bally Neal. It's one of the great places in golf. Oh, I'm telling you, Bruce Hepner, Kai Gobi, uh, uh, I, could, I mean, the list goes, uh, Mike McCartan, uh, the, uh, Jonathan Reister, the list goes on and on of talented guys that were sitting on that site and, and got to build it. Unfortunately, I had to go to Sabonic, which I don't regret, but I do sometimes deep in my heart wonder how I could have helped that golf course become a better product than it is. But I doubt it. I thought Bruce, Kai Goby, Jonathan Reister, Mike McCartan, I think those guys nailed it. And I think Rupert, by giving them the piece of land that he gave them with, with as you said, unlimited boundaries, uh, they pulled off a spectacular golf course that members enjoy today. That's right. That, and that just real quickly, that goes back to another tangent on this topic of routing and, and what's a good routing and what's a bad. And, and can you tell the, the, the player, the club member in, except for rare situations, the reader of a novel will, the, the, the viewer of a film will in, almost never know what was left on the cutting room floor. They will never. generally never know that what didn't get built. So if the final product is as exemplary as Bally Neal is, then I think <laughs> you made the right calls and there's, there's no way to know or, or fathom, you know, what, what was left out. It doesn't, and in, in a way it doesn't matter. I get, you know what? That's a good question. Does it matter? Don't you want to know what was left out? Don't you want to know the alternate ending to a great book? Sometimes I wonder, I think to myself, what if, what if, what if? I think if, if it's an unsatisfying product, you certainly would wonder. And, and there are plenty of unsatisfactory movies where you can think about the decisions that were made. But the great ones, you never question it, I don't think. And, you, and, and, and there's a reason why people like yourself are in the business, because you have a level of expertise that can deliver a product that doesn't make people question what if. And, you know, that is the genius of the routing, is, is, is that it gives you an end to the story. And if the end of the story you're satisfied with, Derek, you make a good point. Then you don't want to know anything else. You're satisfied. You're complete. You've paid your $10 for the movie. You've your $14 for the book. You close the chapter. You're satisfied. But, 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 <laughs> but what if, I often wonder, what if there was another hole you could have inserted? And what if that we would have turned right instead of left? And, and, and how many holes did Bill and Ben leave at the Sandhills that never got built uh, in their constellation routing? I mean, what if, and I know that's not fair, but you said it right. 
You don't need to know if the movie was good, if the book was good. The ending is the end. Be happy. Go on. That's the artist's, the artist's dilemma. The artist knows what was left out. So I, I hear that in your voice. <laughs> the, the, the audience member doesn't know. And believe it or not, Jim, this is not the end. This is just the beginning of our of our podcast, of our talk. I know. So I let's know. do it. Let's let's get to our discussion with Mike DeVries. Are you ready? Let's do it. Okay. Good guy. Mike, I don't I don't know if you had a chance. I know you were tagged into the the Twitter uh, feeds about questions. I just wanted to ask you one. One was an interesting question. You probably get tired of hearing this at some point, but. Will there be a second course at Cape Wickham? Uh, it's their intention uh, to do that. I don't know what the status of that is right now or whatever. So uh, the original owner, um, he sold it to a, a Vin Pearl, which is a Vietnamese billionaire that has a big, um, you know, it's a multi-conglomerate sort of, you know, but they, they have they have some golf courses and, they would like to, they want to have, you know, they, they have, they've gone through the development um, program, you know, on the island to like, you know, have more lodging and things like that, but they haven't started anything. And they would like to do another golf course, but I don't know if that's going to happen or not, or when. Jim, have you, you have you been to Cape Wickham? I have not. One of the things that I wanted to do was make a trip to Australia, Tasmania, and, uh, most certainly, after I talked to Matt Janella, uh, wanted to see what um, Mike and and his uh, group did down there. Yeah. The photos are spectacular. Uh, as, but as you know, Mike, uh, no disrespect, uh, until you walk and touch and feel and look in 360 degrees, uh, that's when generally when I tend to say, wow, this is cool. But the photos are spectacular. Yeah. Thanks. Um, yeah, that is the hardest thing there is that it's the site so spectacular is you're trying to figure out, you're not trying to dumb it down, but you're trying not to focus on that. You're just trying to focus on really good golf because it's so dramatic. You don't need to embellish it in any way. And um, so I think, you know, we were real successful in it. You know, I've had people say that it's like, wow, the, the photos are awesome. And, you know, I can't wait. I'm going. And then the first thing they say when they, like, get there, they go, holy shit. (laughs) 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 Because, I mean, it's more, I mean, it's even more, you know, it's just, it's, um, it's, you know, it's kind of the end of the world. But it's it's only a 40-minute flight from Melbourne. So it's really not that, um, it's really not that far away. And, um you know, the lighthouse there, 157 feet tall. It's really a phenomenal, spectacular um, site. And it's really, the thing that's really amazing about it is it's, it's more diverse than any ocean site I've seen because we have cliff, we have, we have, you know, linksy seaside holes. We have um, the 11th holes basically in the ocean. So it has all these sort of, ways that you experience and interact with the water either visually or going to it you know you're not just it's not just all cliff top or it's not just all low dune seashore um you know there's a lot of spectacular sites but this you interact with the water in a lot of different ways and that's what really i think makes it special 
Hey, Mike, if you don't mind, and, and, and I'm not trying to be negative any, in any way. Mm-hmm. Did, do you think that people will ever look down to see what you actually did on the ground? Does that make sense? Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I, you know, um, some people, you know, some people will, a lot of people won't, you know, I mean, but that's okay. You know, are they enjoying the experience and what's happening and what, you know, what they're experiencing and, you know, do they want to like get off at 18 and go around and hit number one right away? Um, so yeah, I, but I think like any, any project, I mean, I don't know what you think, Jim, but I mean, any project, um, there are certain people that are going to go, Oh, you know, why do you do that? Or, you know, well, there's a lot of, there's a lot of times you, you know, you sit there and you might question something on a, on a project that isn't your project, um, and go, you know, why, why'd that happen? But there's a lot of circumstances that you wouldn't know about the project unless you were there, you know, building it every day. Right. 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 So, right. um, you know, I, I guess I like, I tend to look at that and go, huh, I wonder what happened and why they decided to do this and maybe not that, or, you know, cause there's, there's legitimate reasons to do a lot of different things. Um, sure. Sure. But I think, and, that, I, and when I, I think, think about happens, looking, yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. When I think, when I think about looking down the ground contours, you know, some of the cool green sites that you've done, uh, the feeder ball, the ball running on the ground, you're so in awe of your surroundings. Will everybody, will anybody give all the little detail work that you did any chance to, to, uh, thrive in 18 holes. Yeah. I think that's that, that's that small, you know, that's what we do, right? Yeah. We're, we're hyper on that. Uh, We are hyper. Uh, I am hyper. Yeah. Yeah. But But it's also uh, one of those cases, isn't it? That uh, Cape Wickham is, is the, the victim of its own setting in a way is that maybe people will play it twice if they go, you know, there might be a contingent of locals or people from Australia who get to know Mm -hmm. the course better, but I would, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I would guess most people fly there, play it once, maybe twice, and they don't really have a chance to get to know the golf courses, which you guys are talking about, to, to understand what Mike DeVries' intentions were on top of this majestic oceanside setting that's, you know, like like very few in the world. So that's, you're a victim of your own amazing setting because people aren't going to be able to, to kind of revisit and revisit and revisit as they do it like the Kingsley club and really get to know the golf course and get into the intricacies. Yeah, I think, yeah, it's, it's a valid point. Um, I think, you know, more and more people, I mean, like band, there's a lot of people that go back to band every year. Right. I mean, that's not easy to get to, um, you know, it, from, for me, from Michigan, it's easier for me to go to England than it or Ireland than it is to go to, the yeah, same for me <laughs> so you know um but they go to bandon you know, and they that, spend and, and tell me if i'm wrong but they go to bandon and they spend three four nights they can get around the, the courses multiple times i don't know what the situation on king island is um if they could just hunker down there for long enough to really absorb the golf course yeah um yeah currently i think they i think the tendency is not to do that um, but like Barnboogle, you know, they have multiple states because they have two golf courses and they're building the, the par three. Well, it's not really a par three. It's a short course. It's worth that way. Um, so, you know, they have more lodging. They have they have more of a setup there to be able to do that. 
Um, I think um, Wickham could do that. King Island could do that. You know, effectively. I mean, there's there's another golf course there, Ocean Dunes, mm-hmm. um, but it's not on the same. It's not the same compound and stuff. And then there's the nine hole King Island Golf and Bowling Club, lawn bowling. Um, so uh, draws a lot um, of people, right? Yeah, Big international exactly. contingent. <laughs> heavy, heavy, <laughs> heavy tournaments. Uh, um, and you know, I mean, you know, I've spent a lot of time on the island, and the family was there with me for six months during oh, the main part you. of the film. So you. I think you know, of the island, and we love that sort of remote and kind of throwback in time sort of aspect to it. But I think that's also you know one of the reasons the owner. You know, they want to have more lodging. They want to have, you know, potentially another golf course so that people will have a tendency to stay longer and uh, do more, you know, and, and play the golf course more times. But I think there's also people that are that are coming back, you know, that, that are going to make return visits. There's a lot of people that regularly go down to, to Barnbull. You know, they might be a member of a club in Sydney or Melbourne, but they, you know, they go down to Barnbull, they have a getaway and, the golf's that good and Wickham it's that good could I ask you a question about the routing of Cape Wickham did you have free reign anywhere you wanted to go uh yeah there's some pinch points you know because of uh some really big dunes that are east of the golf course and sort of in the center like right behind the right behind the um clubhouse and the clubhouse setting is kind of a natural because you sit there and you look north, so you get, you know, in the southern hemisphere, you get full sun, and you look over Victoria Cove and the lighthouse and all of that. So, you know, from a standpoint of, you know, sitting there and having a year after year round, that was kind of, that was sort of a logical spot. How could we orient that? But that also then complicated things because there's a pinch point there. There's this massive dune behind you, and, you know, I don't we didn't want to dig for six months and move that. <laughs> so right. you know, that didn't really make sense. So, um, so there were some restrictions on the property, you know, just like sometimes when you get into a, you know, unusual piece of property, Jim, where you have, you know, some things mesh and then, you know, there's, there are these restrictions that force you to go a certain way. And, you, and part of the puzzle is trying to figure out how to make that work. And then, so for us, it was the 13 holes were really, you know, that really what is kind of what made the deal. And then the five holes to finish, um, you know, so it's, it's an imbalanced, you know, it's not nine and nine or it's not 10 and eight, you know, 13, five sounds kind of weird, but you know, nobody really, you know, I mean, no one's like, wow, that's really goofy, right? but it's, um, you know, there's plenty of golf courses that it's a, it's a full string of 18 holes and you, you know, you wouldn't, you're totally captivated there. So it's not, and like, and for certain guys, you know, maybe they don't want to play another full eight. There's a bunch of different options that you can do. You could go play one, two, three, 13, or one, two, three, four, five, 13. You could finish, you could play like six holes there, or you could go play 14 to 18 again, what we call the lighthouse loop there. So it gives like some other, um, you know, potential like shorter um, little after loops or something to do, which is which is kind of cool. How many holes did you leave out there that you couldn't use? Uh, a lot, <laughs> a lot of you know, a lot of good ones. Uh, you know, 
um, one of the really, you know, one of the coolest holes on the property was a 330 yard par four where the seventh tee sits now. Um, it's, a, it's sort of this big dune that goes east west, and it's about 300 yards from the shore. So you've got this great vantage point where you're, the tee sits there. If you turn around, you see the ocean to the south, the north, you see the lighthouse. You have all this really cool sort of thing. But if you were coming at it from the other direction, away from the ocean, um, kind of towards it, there's this this big ridge that the tees sit on ended up being a spine that made like a big drive. Um, you know, it could hit the spine and go left and then be totally blind to a little shelf green, or you could roll it down and have like a, a look at it. But, you know, maybe we're going to have a bunker there. Or we didn't get, you know, we didn't get that far. But it was a really, really cool golf hole. And ultimately, you know, it got the... <laughs> You got the X, you know, because it, it, it wasn't the ultimate fit. Um, lots, lots of things happen like that. That happened at Kingsley. The first really cool hole I ever saw was a, was about a 500-yard par 5 that was like from the middle of the, what's now the current third hole um, back towards the second hole into the 6T. And it was kind of like cool up and down ground and you know, if you really busted a drive and got it in a position, you could do it. But if you fell into a hollow, you'd still have a shot, but you wouldn't probably see the green. But you could, you know, you could always play safe. So, but it didn't work with anything else. So then you just got to, then you got to like give it up and, and go, okay, well, what, what's, the, what are, what's the best sequence of holes? And the best sequence of holes is always better than a single hole, I think. You know? Great question. So that's exactly where I was going to go. You would you would forget that those holes ever existed, so the flow was better at Cape Wickham, and the flow was better at the Kingsley Club. You're willing to discard those, maybe your favorite hole, because of the flow. Absolutely, for me, rhythm and flow takes takes precedence over yeah over one great hole. Absolutely, because I can tell you that there's several routings. Several holes at the Sand Hills, several holes at Pacific Dunes, several holes at, at, at uh, you name the beautiful site. And they are sacrificed for the flow. They are sacrificed for the rhythm. And I know you had three or four holes at Cape Wickham just by looking at the land that you probably said, Todd, oh, I wish I could build that. I wish I didn't have to only build 18 holes. What's wrong, right. with, 20, what's wrong with 21 holes? <laughs> But who could you convince, what owner could you convince to do a 21-hole scorecard? Well, you know, um, Richard Sattler did it down at Lost Farm. He did he did 20, you know. Right, right. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's, I mean, that's unconventional. I, I've seen more of that, though, like with short courses, you know. So it was 13 holes works or, you know, it was eight or you know, 15 or whatever, because we fit in all these little kind of cool little things if you have a really sort of diverse piece of property. But, um, yeah, I to me, it's that, you know, the rhythm and flow and stuff, I wrote an article about, about that a long time ago. Um, and um, to me, that's like, that's the crux of the biscuit right there. I mean, that that's the perfect 
sort of entree into talking about routings is that you know you can have a great routing and no great holes and you can still have a really really good golf course that's fun every day and for people to grow old and stuff like that yeah it's nice when you can sprinkle in some great holes right <laughs> that you know or sort of blow your socks off but that's part of i think the successful uh rhythm and flow of, of a really really good golf course that you get maybe sort of these visual highlights um crystal downs does that you know amazingly well where you have you know, I grew up there, so, you know, I've analyzed it in how many million different ways. But you stand on the first tee, and you have this spectacular view. You see the entire front nine. Then you go down, and you don't have any other view, but you play these great holes, some really world-class golf holes, and you come back, and, you know, so the first act is kind of the front nine, and you finish up back at that high point again and get the view again. Big drive off of 10, and then you kind of sleep, you know, sneak through the woods and, get to the upper plateau and then you have a little view at 14 and um that's sort of act two and then act three you know you've turned around now you're going back home 15 to 18 but um like any good uh, whether it's you know music or you know literature um, plays um there's sort of that the ultimate you know the penultimate climax the climax of the, the third act um, finishes there at the 17th green where you're standing up above the world and the winds usually howling across you and you have an impossible putt. And then you, the afterward is like this full of, you know, dog leg right into the valley below the clubhouse for the 18th. Not super hard, but not necessarily a piece of cake either. Um, so that's a really nice, you know, sequence of how you sort of explore a, a piece of ground and um, and it works from a, from the cadence standpoint of you know of uh, us getting out of there and walk it or experience it with golf hey in case you hadn't heard the digital edition of golf digest is now available to download on your phone for free that's right all the content that's in the newsstand magazine plus additional interactive features and videos can now be read on your handheld device just go to your app store and download the Golf Digest app, sign up, and voila, you're in. Currently, you get issue 5 featuring Patrick Cantlay on the cover, and you can read my column on how golf course architecture has evolved since the bang-bang-bling days of the 1980s. And coming soon is Golf Digest's 70th anniversary issue. Yes, Golf Digest is 70 years old this year, and it's packed with great retrospective features from over the decades. So don't miss a thing. Be sure to check out our digital edition now. Let's get back to our talk with Mike DeVries. Mike, I'm curious as you describe Crystal Downs, and and it's one of those golf courses that does move through different scenes and different pockets. And and as you as you said, like there's Act One and Act Two and Act Three. If you had a this is hypothetical, if you had a piece of property that offered that, but you could also use a part of the land that was more homogenous. How important is it to you to change scenes, to have an act one and act two and act three and have those be different parcels versus doing something like a links course where the ground is, is offering the same theme throughout the entire round. You can get great holes on in either situation. Personally, is it important for you to, to, to change scenes to get into different environments or does it make more sense to you to kind of hit, hit that theme over and over again and see how many different variations you can get on that? It's a great question. Um, 
I think you can you can develop some type of interest, you know. So like thinking about Wickham, where you know there's just there's a view on every hole, and it's you know it's it's blow your socks off. So there was like, how do you just tone it down and you know let the let the golf you know create really good golf? Crystal Downs, you had these peaks of the visual sort of highlights, but you had all this great golf and and things that you do. So if you have something that's um, you know, and they have a foliage difference there, the downs. So that's a, um, but if you have all the same sort of palette, you still have different orientations. What's your long distance view? How do you come into, you know, if it's, if it's links or, you know, relatively benign, you know, flatter ground, you can still, there's still, there's still some element there in any property that you can sort of feed off of and make different or how you turn the angle. So if you're, um, I guess the exception to that would be like in the middle of the desert, you know, <laughs> where it, it just seems homogenous, um, totally homogenous. Um, that's for, that's, yeah. And maybe that's not the best, that's the, the best way to answer that. Um, <laughs> I think, um, it's nice to it's nice to have something that draws your attention that that is sort of a sequence or or a type of hole that you can incorporate and even if you have the same sort of vegetation and general lay of the land I think if you think if you can tra- you can transition that with a short par four or you know a long par three some something else that's focusing you on on that golf hole and what makes that golf hole unique and different. You know, maybe it's a, maybe it's a big central bunker or some other element that you want to put in that you're not really doing any place else. And maybe that's a transition. Maybe that's something that moves, that moves you into the next, um, you know, the next phase of the golf course. Cause I, when I do a routing, Mike, when I do a routing, when I look at a property, I just recently got off, a piece of land this past fall with Michael Kaiser. I'm looking at, I'm looking for landforms that capture my attention and they usually equate to a green site. How many holes at Cape Wickham and really at at the Kingsley club, one of your first successful golf courses, how many of the holes that you ratted were derivatives of a good green site uh, versus creating a green site? Almost entirely. Really, all eighteen holes. Almost, yeah, yeah. Really, Kingsley. In Kingsley, well, in Kingsley, there's uh, there's two sites that are really artificial, um, but um, the concept, you know, fits into the the surrounding landscape. So. Um, in fact, someone said uh, to me once, "They're like, oh, that's like the that's like the most natural green site." I said, "No, that's the that's, that's there's more dirt moved there than that's twenty five percent of the dirt moved on the property." Just <laughs> <laughs> classic, classic. Yeah, that's classic. so. I was like, yeah. Um, I, I I look at it the same way. I think you're looking. I think you're looking for sort of unique features and how uh, you can how you can approach those and go into those. Right. So. If you have, um, if you have a, you know, sort of a pocket of green that's sort of sheltered or feeds in from one direction but not another, 
well, that obviously leads that hole to come from that direction. It could be, you know, it, it could be a, a hole of any length, but it's got to sort of come from one direction. It's sort of oriented that way. That gives you kind of like, okay, well, if I do that, that's, you know, that's hole A. Where do I go to hole B then? And, the, you know, that's how you sort of connect those pieces. But, um, yeah, I think I'm, I think I'm always looking for something that's unique or special about like a spot, you know, how, what, what would make that green different? So if you can do that, even if you have a homogenous piece of to sort of step back, and stuff, but it, even if you can, even if you do that, then, you know, you've got, you know, a plateau green on this hole and you have sort of a sheltered green on this hole. And, um, you know, you, you have opportunities to do things differently. Western Gales in Scotland does that really well. It's an old traditional links golf course, but starts. That's my favorite golf course. (laughs) That's one of my favorites. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Sorry to butt in Derek, but anytime somebody says Western Gales, I get a, uh, I get some feedback money wise. (laughs) You're, you are allowed some, a few joyous interruptions. (laughs) Of course. He said Western Gales. I about came out of my seat. Thank you, Mike. All right, go ahead. Continue. Sorry. Well, it's, it's got some really cool, like, you know, little pockets. uh, It does. It's great. And how they do, but they're different, you know? So like the six hole, when you, you come back, you know, you, you've gotten to the end and you've made the turn and you stand up on the tee and you're sort of on that ridge and you see the ocean, but then you hit yep. inland. The dude, yep. then you don't see the ocean anymore. And, and then the green is sort of tucked behind this big dune, but there's this gap to the right where you sort of are led to play. And then, you know, you hit there and then you have this almost impossible chip shot over this little, you know, four foot little ridge that kind of filters and, you know, controls the front right of the green. And, you know, it's just this really unbelievable, cool, you know, feature. And they have other pocketed greens there too, but that one's really different than the other ones. Yeah, I agree. I love the green sites there. And so I think to myself, and when I saw the photos of Cape Wickham and, and I've been to Kingsley club, we played around the golf there, you know, yeah. I stopped long, you long, on one of the holes time. Uh, I stopped you. Do you remember that uh, hole we stopped and putted for a little while? Because I said, I hope you don't mind me bringing this up. I said, Mike, what were you thinking here? <laughs> I remember that very distinctly. The 13th, yeah. the craziest. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, uh, obviously, yeah, that, you fell so, in love with the golf So that's punches. one of the, that, um, just to, um, you know, thinking about that one. So that wasn't the original green site for that hole. But the oh, hole was okay. basically in that in that I don't know if we talked about that that day or not. But there was a that big bowl that's left of the green. Yes, I remember ridge, that. there's a narrow ridge behind that and that's where the green was gonna go. And I cleared all the brush, which it was just a thicket on where the green is now, and it had all that crazy stuff there. And I was like Wow, <laughs> this is really. Um, but it, you know, it's four. It's two hundred eighty-five yards, so it's a short yeah. par four, and yeah. um, it's like there's, you know, there's all these different pin locations and different ways to play the hole, and um, and so you know, kind of it makes sense because it's it's sort of crazy, but it totally breaks it totally breaks the rule of short par four, small green. It's the biggest green on the golf course, but there's all these little small compartments, obviously. So. And and you you took a green site you you broke up your routing 
flow and took a green site that you fell in love with and and made the whole work to that new green site. Yeah. Yeah. And it didn't affect the it didn't affect really the walk to the next tee was twenty yards further, maybe, you know. I mean, so it wasn't it wasn't like a huge difference. Um as far as like that, the transition wasn't 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 an issue. Now, if the transition had been, you know, another eighty or eighty yards or something, then it might have been like, well, is that really worth it? Well, the site was really cool, you know. Then maybe you still do it, or you or maybe you adjust the next hole. So. And how far how far a walk in that transition? Uh, this is something that's always forgotten in routings. And I think about this a lot. How far is that transition walk from green to the next tee? How big a role does that play in how you lay out your routings? Well, I, you know, I love it when you can step off the green and basically be on the tee. You know, if that, if it, you know, if it's a, if that's allowable. So if you have a private club, then you have that opportunity because you got people know where they're going. They, they, they know the cadence of the golf course. Maybe you don't have as you know, as busy of a round or something like that. So there's opportunities um, to do things that are closer, that are tighter. Because, I mean, that's just, that's kind of like the way the, you know, that's how the game started, right? You, sure. You were sure. in a club length of the hole and bam. So I think it, I like to keep those as short as possible. But you know, if you've got a busy public golf course, you have to have a little bit of separation that's okay but you want it to be like for instance we have from three to three green to four t at wickham we have about a hundred hundred and ten yard walk but (laughs) you're you're right on the edge of the of this sort of rocky shore and you're just looking at the ocean so not a A stroll in the park a stroll in the park because we needed to get, we needed to gain a little elevation. It's a, it's a gradual, very gradual climb. And the, and the drive on number four is still blind, but the, the lighthouse is your, is, is kind of your sentinel. So it was worth it to get to that position because we wanted to have that orientation to the back to the lighthouse, right. uh, which was a really cool effect uh, where it was a direct, where, you know, it was a really direct shot. And so, you know, that was a little longer. And, and Duncan, the, um, the original owner, he was like, well, that's, that's too far. And I'm like, yeah, but we're just walking along the ocean. This isn't so bad. And then we, you know, we walked. Or, next time he came, we walked. And he's like, oh, that's not so bad. <laughs> so, you know, he, he, he realized it wasn't, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a bad walk. Uh, yeah, pe- people go to places like that to walk along the ocean without a golf course. Right. Just because it's on the ocean. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so that's one of those, that's one of those things about, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful for, for in, you know, post COVID uh, era that, you know, people that are, they're just itching to get outside and go for a walk, you know, cause they're cooped up. Hopefully maybe, you know, golf has an opportunity to take advantage of that. And, you know, people, Hey, that doesn't sound so bad. It actually would go for a couple hours, play nine holes or, you know, four hours or 18 holes and you know, whatever. And, you know, walk with my buddies. I want to ask both of you guys this. Um, we're talking about routings. It occurs to me, Mike, that uh, you and Jim have been doing this for a, a long time. You've both been exposed to the, the art of routing a golf course, but there are a lot of people in the business who 
haven't had a chance to actually route their own golf course yet. Um, hopefully they will, but it's not something that, that, that comes up that often. How I would like you to think about when you first got into the business and you were each routing your own golf courses or exposed to that process of routing a golf course and tell me, is it an art that you've become better at through the years or is it something that if you have a great piece of land and you're smart and you've seen enough great golf, you can kind of pick up on it right away? Go ahead, Mike. I was, I was hoping you were going to answer first. <laughs> All right. All right. I'll go. I'll go. I'll go. No, I'm ready. Not, yeah, go. go. No, I'm ready. Go. I'm ready. It's a, it's a complicated Derek, question. Here. It's a good one. Uh, to me, to me, I've been on both sides. And and the reason I tell you I've been on both sides, when I worked for Pete and his son, Perry, we were given the golf course. And uh, some of these golf courses were in developments. The TPC Plum Creek to be to, uh, to name one of them. And so the, the, the kind of dictated the routing. And within that routing corridor is where Pete and Perry did their magic. And I could say the same thing for... Mr. Seth Rayner, who was given land plans like at Mountain Lake and Yeamans Hall and uh, Gibson Island, these were land plans done by the Olmstead brothers that, no, they were not exactly uh, allowed to go wherever they wanted, but they were, they were uh, you know, kind of forced in the, into certain locations so that the development could also work. So I've been on both sides. When the land plan is given to you, when the routing is kind of forced upon you, then you are a subject to whatever they give you, and you try to make the best of it. A short part three across a ravine or a drainage, long part fives along open land. But then, but then I got exposed to the, the wonderful pieces of the land that I got to work on after I left the dyes. And then that's when I started to realize that you were going to look for green sites. You were going to look for uh, the flow and the rhythm, as Mike talks about. And so I've been on both sides. And so in the beginning, we were kind of following a land plan. And, and you know, Pasa Temple was, on a, was developed by the Olmstead brothers. And, and, and that turned out pretty good. But when you're given the freedom to go wherever, that's when I had to turn the light switch on to a different brightness because now I wasn't constricted by 300-foot corridors. Now I wasn't constricted by roads and streets and homes and uh, and somebody else's land plan. And you want to talk about freedom. I mean, it's it's beyond, uh, beyond comprehension how much freedom you have. Mike DeVries had the most unbelievable creativity uh, of art at Cape Wickham because he was not tied to a land plan. So I've been on both sides and I can tell you the creative freedom to go wherever you want and not constricted within a corridor is, is, is a dream that any golf course builder, designer, architect, whatever you want to call them. That's the, that's the ultimate dream. And Mike's uh, Kingsley club, one of the first golf courses he did, he, he got uh, almost a free pallet, didn't you? Yeah, we, it's a, it's a complex piece of land, and um, yeah, I've been really fortunate that you know I, I haven't been 
stuck with one of those things like you say like okay here's your corridors and, and there you go design the golf that's certainly not nearly as exciting in a lot of ways you know the process of trying to figure out what that piece of land is offering you is for me is one of the most enjoyable parts of the job you know that's why we do what we do i think um because um even like you know, i was saying before even if you have a flat piece of ground there's something in that ground that's going to give you an idea of what you can do you know because you got to figure out where water's going you got to okay here's the normal wind but the wind comes from this direction also you know there's all these things that you're trying to put in there um some of it consciously some of it just you know happens subconsciously when you i think when you do it for a while and but when i got into um you know design and construction and things you know i was working for doke um and we were always just we were we were dealing with at um at uh, Myrtle Beach and uh, for the Heathlands course down at the Legends and then for the Black Forest up in Michigan, you know, we had generous pieces of property and we were building, you know, we were building a, a core golf course. And so we were always talking about this shot or that shot. And um, we weren't like, yeah, well, there's, you know, that's Mr. Johnson's house. We got to... <laughs> We got to exactly. go over here. Yeah, so exactly. that's a, that's really nice to be able to have that ability to do that. And I think if you certainly every owner has maybe you know they, they have they have certain ideas or things. And a lot of times that has to do with the with the clubhouse or uh, the clubhouse you know location or some other amenity that they want to add in. Even if you're building the core golf course, so you're trying to accommodate that or you know like. It was, there was sort of a logical spot to put the clubhouse for Cape Wickham, just from the, van, the, the, the visual vantage point that you'd have there. And so, um, you know, that was kind of something that we were kind of, I was trying to figure out, okay, how do you get all these, how do you get all these holes to work in? And then we've got this narrow little piece where the clubhouse is going to sit and, how do we get around that and how do we make it work to, you know, either or. So from 13 green to 14 T is about 107. The walk is probably 180 yards, but you go right by the clubhouse. You want to grab a, you know, you want to grab a beverage or something. And we talked about having like a short 120 yard, you know, hole in there, even if it was just sort of a buy hole. Um, just to like, you know, okay, this is, you know, here's a little, here's a little hundred yard shot. Whoever loses the hole, you know, they buy the drinks for the, for the last five or something like that. You know, it's something that could have been, you know, a fun little extra in, in there. And it wouldn't necessarily have to be part of the, of the whole, you know, the full 18 hole round. So I think, you know, for me, I've been very fortunate to have a lot of freedom of, of trying to figure those things out and the projects that I've done. But then projects have other sorts of limitations. So gray walls up in Marquette, there's these huge, massive granite walls. And, you know, they're spectacular. And you don't want to blast them. That's a waste because you can't build them as good as Mother Nature can build them. So... Um, there were there were things that we that you just physical things that you had to deal with and how do you incorporate that and then make it flow and make it work together um, and the other 
side um, for the Mines Golf Course in Grand Rapids, there's two streets. Um, one's aside the golf course on, on like the southern boundary, but one splits um, kind of east-west. And then there's a big power line that splits it north-south. So there's actually four quadrants of the property. One of the quadrants is real small, and that was going to be uh, the idea was to build that into a short course someday, which may still happen. We'll see. Um, but it's a it's sort of an active stand mine right now. Um, and then um, the other four, the other three quadrants were larger, but they had these sort of limitations because we didn't want to play under the big power lines. So there's sort of a transition back and forth to those that you have to when you go out to 12 and come back at 17, which isn't ideal. That's kind of like housing, though. Right, it <laughs> you know, is like housing. Yeah, you're sort of restricted, and you're trying to, you know, not visually look at, you know, the big power lines. You're trying to like leave some trees there to buffer them and soften them, and um, so that's a yeah. There's there's a challenge with that, but it it is nice to have that freedom, like you're saying, Jim, to be able to, you know, really go at it and think about it from different ways. And you know what what makes what makes the best ultimately the best golf course. I think Mike, what I wanted, to, what I'm curious is that it was when I know a lot of the people who listen to this podcast fantasize about routing their own golf course or being a golf course architect, and we're not, and you are. Um, and, and you mentioned the freedom at Cape Wickham. I guess what I'm trying to get at is is how much skill is involved in routing a golf course? Now you mentioned projects that, you know, you had to make decisions and it was more about fitting the puzzle pieces in and, and finding the right combination. But I'll just ask it like this. If, if Mike DeVries would have gotten the Cape Wickham site in 1994, could you have routed the golf course and solved those problems and created the same thing that you did years later? Uh, I think so. Just because, you know, I, I, Kingsley was real early, and it's a really diff, it's actually a very difficult site. Um, we had cleared nine holes, and and Bill Coor was in Northern Michigan, and and um, he was touring a property with someone that a guy that I knew, and I was on the golf course at, at Crystal Downs, and I got a call, and <laughs> I finished my round, and Fred says. Bill Coors in town, they want to go look at Kingsley. And, and and I just told them to go under the, you know, the cable and, you know, go look around or whatever. And by the time I got there, um, they, you know, they were, they were like coming out then. Um, but what was interesting was Bill and, and Bill is, you know, he's just one of the, you know, he's one of the elite guys. Right. And he's one of the nicest guys in the world, just period. And um, he, He's pretty soft-spoken, doesn't really say a lot uh, much of the time. But what he says something, you know, you're really sort of um, – you pay attention because it's, it's, it's probably pretty worthwhile. And he goes, it's a difficult property. <laughs> you know, he, I mean, he, this is – you know, it's raw ground. He, you know, we cleared a lot of the trees away and stuff like that. But he was, he was like, you know, that wasn't – it's not an easy property to, to sort of, you know – figure out the puzzle on, you know, that, you know, he just walked, it was pretty quick, but still, um, you know, I felt, I felt really good about that. That was a nice, um, it was a nice compliment. Um, so I, I think I, I think I could have done it. Um, would, would I have figured out all the, the little nooks and crannies and 
stuff like that. Maybe not. Yeah, I th- you know, I, I, I think a lot of that's spending the thousands of days that I did growing up working at the, on the golf course playing golf, um, you know, at Crystal Downs because it's 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 so complex. There's so many unique things there that yeah, just doing that every day, seeing it in all four seasons, seeing you know, seeing what it was like sledding off the you know, first tee with my kids, really, you know, later on, you saw the golf course in a different way, but you saw things that made you think about, you know, wow, that's like where the second hole is and that's the approach. And there's a lot more movement there. And that's usually something you hit over. You know, you usually don't land there, but you're walking the ground and stuff, but you're not spending time there. But when you're on a sled and you're then trudging back up the hill and you got the kids in tow, <laughs> you're you're um you know you're sort of taking taking notes and and looking at stuff in a different way which is kind of cool and so derek jim i have to I, I have to interrupt real quick jim just tell you this that that mike's work at kingsley was was uh so impressive that when we did the ncaa architects of golf tournament uh, a month or so ago kingsley knocked off sandhills wow. in the in the uh, regional finals uh, according to the voters of america <laughs> did mike fall out of the window at his house when that was going on it was a party good for you, good for you. congratulations bill core knew what he was talking about even back then. congratulations that's great uh, derek i want to go back I, if i didn't clarify or i want to clarify my my answer even though I was working for Pete and Perry and doing these these golf courses that sometimes were associated with with uh, development, I was I was still studying. I was still going to Scotland. I was still studying the top fifty golf courses in the United States. Walking, playing. I went to the National Golf Links of America when I was still working for the Dyes. I went to Pinehurst when I worked for the Dyes. I was going to all these great golf courses, what people thought were the greatest golf courses of, of our time, waiting, waiting, waiting for my chance to, to show what I could do when I got that open canvas, when I got that special piece of land. So even though I was working in those corridors uh, like TPC at Plum Creek and, 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 and other developments, I continued to search and I continue to hang out and look at great golf courses, Prairie Dunes. Mike DeVries has Kingsley Club in his backyard. He has Crystal Downs in his backyard. I had to go drive. I live in Denver. I had to go and fly and see these great golf courses, always waiting for my chance. Because when I got the chance, I knew what I wanted to do. I knew what the art of routing was going to be about, looking for those green sites. And I just wanted to ask Mike if the green sites for Cape Wickham were the important part because it just confirmed what I've always felt. Go find a green site. It'll spell out the routing. Is that fair? Yeah, for the most part, absolutely. You know, and then there's times when you have to, like, connect something and you got to make it work. And, and that happens, too. And, and that, can you can you pull that off? That's always, you know, that's always that's always fun too. That's a different challenge. Um, and you got to make those, make those things kind of fit together. And I think, you know, it's a great point that you, you know, you make of going and seeing other stuff. So whether that's, whether that's new stuff, whether that's old stuff, 
you, you always, I mean, for me, I always learn and when I see stuff and, and do that, um, you know, whether it's, whether it's going over to England, Scotland, Ireland, um, seeing the old, you know, just going to like a, you know, the local little, you know, golf course, there's some cool, weird stuff in some of those places. And you, you know, you just walk around, you're kind of going, wow, that's, that's, that's a fun golf hole. That's a neat shot. That would yeah. be, you know, and that's, stuff that just kind of evolved like a lot of times nobody really designed it it was just kind of there and they sort of played it or old Tom morris laid it out and he did a pretty good he did he was pretty good <laughs> yeah, I agree. Uh, and derek so. and derek i could i could tell you if if i was telling somebody if i was talking to somebody who wanted to start to learn how to to, to route golf courses, how to lay them on the ground, how to lay them on the, on the natural landforms. The first thing I would tell them is don't worry about what your scorecard looks like. Do you agree, Mike? That's a great point. Absolutely. Yeah. I think there was, I think there was a, there were one of the questions uh, Derek, that somebody responded was, you know, how, how often are you, do you break rules? You break rules all the time. All the guys broke and. The great, you know, Mackenzie broke all 13 rules somewhere. Probably, you know, probably a couple of rules <laughs> most golf courses that he did. Um, <laughs> just, you know, you've, uh, they're unique situations. That's what's, that's what's really fun. It's not a tennis court. It's not X by X with a three foot net or whatever. Um, so I, I think um, trying to, there's no, there's no standard. Although, you know, if you work in Asia, it's got to be par 72 with four fours and four threes, um, you know, 10 par fours. But, you know, that's um, that's just kind of how they sort of view it. And the, the, I always find what's ironic about that is the old course is par 72, and there's two fives and two threes. <laughs> Nobody yep. ever talks about that. Yeah. So that's right. Throw but, the scorecard away. Don't yeah. worry about the scorecard. Don't think about how the holes are going to finish. You know, one of the things that Pete made famous was what I called the Pete Dye Amen Corner, 5-3-4. He did that with regularity, par 5, par 3, par 4. Now, did he do it everywhere? No, but he did it a lot. And I would say that if you were going to learn how to do a golf course in the natural setting, the Cape Wickhams of the world, then forget about the scorecard. Go find your best holes and see and walk and see what it feels like. But if you're working in a planned development or you're working where you get to create however you want the golf course to look like on flat ground, you may have some of those uh, scorecard uh, facts, the par 72s, four par fives, four par threes. But in natural ground, throw away the idea of the scorecard. Go find your best holes and see how it plays out. Hey, could I ask each? I'm going to ask each of you this since we're talking about routings. Mike, I'll start with you. You cannot use crystal downs. What? What are? What is one or two of your? Because <laughs> you probably answer that. But what? What are some of your favorite routings that you've ever come across? Like I'm, and I'm, ima- uh, I'm, inv- I'm uh, imagining that that as an architect, you're applying your mind and you're saying like, "Wow, I, this is really impressive how this guy thought of that or reacted off this landform or connected these points." Well, first of all, Bel Air's 
unbelievable because you know it has this crazy piece of property with like super high-end real estate right okay around it there's a suspension bridge an elevator and is it two or three tunnels <laughs> so um you know and, but it works but the, yeah, they, that's, it's funny. Jim and I were talking about this the other day. <laughs> yeah. But it's, um, but it's really cool. Cause it, it actually really works well. And it sort of, you know, it, it sort of separates and does these transitions, um, um, where, where it gets around. And I, and I think that is a, it, it's a very, very interesting, unconventional way of doing something. And that's not, that's probably not, you know, it's not in everybody's wheelhouse, of course, too. Uh, can you th- can you imagine how many routings could have been quote unquote solved if they, they had the ability to drill through mountains and put elevators inside mountains? <laughs> yeah. It's just money, Derek. It's just money. Yeah, it's just well, it, money. Hey, it's part and parcel for the neighborhood, the zip code. Um, there's there's a lot there's a lot of great. I mean, that's the thing that always jumps to my mind just because it's so unconventional. Um, um, you know, we, we already mentioned Western Gales, but I think it's a little different. It's an out and back, but it's it's sort of this continuous loop because the, the front nine goes out and back and finishes at the clubhouse, and then the back nine does too. Um, but it's a linear thing, and it's very, you know, symmetrical, and but it still works. Um, that wouldn't be my – that's not, you know, really my preference. If you think about how um, – you know, Mirrorfield's laid out, and um, you know you got the inner circle and the outer circle, and and Colt did a lot of that. You know, he you know he did that in a lot of different properties where he had sort of an you know an exterior nine going around and one you know counterclockwise or clockwise, and then the opposite for the back nine. Um, and those types, you know, as a general rule. Um, can lead to a lot of diversity, but you've got to figure out how they fit into the land and, you know, what, what that piece of property has for that. Oh, I have two. I have two. And, and, and uh, it, Mike just started to touch on it, but one of my most interesting routings that I've ever enjoyed uh, walking and playing was Muirfield in Scotland. And it's what I can, what I call the inside out. So the, the routing uh, is the first nine is on the outside of the property. And then the second nine is on the inside of the outside nine, if that makes sense. I was always fascinated by that in a natural piece of land like Muirfield in Scotland. So one of the, one of the routings that is most influential in, in, in my time right now is the routing of Riviera. And the reason I like that routing is because it's it's what I call, uh, and a magazine quoted me when they interviewed me uh, on some of the work that we had done in Bandon. And I said, looping, looping, always looping. And that's what Riviera does. It, it The first hole goes out and away from the golf course, away from the clubhouse, and then the routing comes back and heads back to the west. And then after that, it comes and loops back and comes back to the clubhouse. And then 10 goes 
out to the south, goes back to the east, then goes back to the west, and then comes back to the east. Looping, looping, always looping. And what (laughs) I've learned from that style of routing is that you can have, in a piece of property, you can have wind diversity, you could have sunlight diversity, you can have uh, the, the, the way the, the perception of location in the golf course. You're not always on the west side of the property or on the east side. You're intermingling back and forth, back and forth across that, 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 that landform. And Riviera has taught me a lot about the loop. And whenever you see, and I hope, again, knock on wood, that I get some some golf courses laid out here before my time is done is that you'll you'll see that loop and 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 that is what drives me and I'm saying I, I'm not going to do it all the time but that constant turning back and forth and back and forth nothing wrong Mike with the out and back of the links lands of Scotland there's an island there's nothing wrong with that but I'm captivated by that loop of what Riviera gives you, what Thomas gives you. And I just, I'm fascinated by it. And it, it's always in the back of my mind when I do my routings. It's, um, it's a great point, Jim. And it's, it, it's, it's also interesting that we touched on three of the triumvirate <laughs> Thomas courses, uh, you know, in LA there, we didn't talk yeah. about LA North, but that's no, fine. Yeah. Um, the, but, um, you know that's that's a that concept that you're talking about looping, looping, always looping. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of, you know old courses that the first or you know second hole would come back towards the clubhouse or the third hole where you where you'd have because they were doing match play and so you you know you had to go extra holes. You didn't want to like keep going and then walk all the way back. You know if you finished after the second hole. You know, hopefully you could, you know, someone would win the match in the next couple of holes or something. So it's always, I think, fun and interesting to be able to develop um, opportunities to do that. And you can do that through like a loop or th- for alternative types of things. Um, you know, if it's a members, if it's a members club where, you know, you skip two or three holes in the middle of the nine to play like a short nine. And we, I talked about that with. Maybe you have options for five or six holes around Cape Wickham. You got the same thing kind of at um, at Kingsley, where you can go and and play um, one, two, five, sixty to seven, eight, nine, or you can just play one sixty to seven green, eight, nine. You, you know, you can do that, or you can or you can play ten, eleven, eighteen. So there's different ways of doing like smaller little um you know mini loops whether you do that to finish off a match or determine who wins or whether you do that you know a grandfather with his grandkids or you know a parent with their kids going out and you know they're only gonna last three holes right (laughs) so you know you don't want to be at the end of the you don't want to be at the end of the property you want to introduce them to the game so that that kind of you know works really well. Did that answer your question, Derek? 
Absolutely. And it, Mike, that also ties into another question that I want to get to before we sign off here is uh, Sam Leach on Twitter asked, how much do you consider match play or the stretch, quote unquote, when it comes to rounding a golf course? Some of the best courses I know have a very strong last six holes. So, Jim, you were talking about, you know, uh, the, the looping, looping, looping. That's a concept that, you, that you're that you interested in that you're trying to apply. Um, making a, a stretch run of holds to be interesting for match play uh, is a concept. Uh, I'm curious, and, and I, I'm, I'm going to interject one thing here. I was having another conversation, and, and, and Jim, before we were on air, we were talking about um, Bobby Weed and the Grove, and one thing that he did, because that's an ultra-private course for a private client, uh, they wanted it to be a very strong match play golf course. So the finishing holes are kind of designed. There's a lot of risk reward, a lot of uh, a penalty in the holes. You can see matches like swinging one way or the other. Mike, we, we've talked about finding holes in the property, you know, using green sites as the key. But but how much room is there in, in your mind when you're riding a golf course to kind of create these concepts or these elements that y- you as the architect are, are imparting in anticipation of a match or something like that coming down the stretch? How much does that factor into your thinking? It, well, I think it's it's important, but that's important in, in the flow of the round. So we, Jim was talking about uh, Pete's, you know, five, three, four finish. And when you think about the original TPC course, you know, nine and 18 are both these ball buster holes, right? You know, there's water in between them. And, um, and that sort of philosophy got repeated, repeated, repeated again and again and again. Um, I'm not, a, I'm not a huge fan of that. Pete's, Pete's awesome. And TPC's awesome and all that. But, um, I think that, you know, think about the, about the old course and you got the 18th hole there. Some guys can drive the green, but you got the, you know, there's no bunkers. It's a hundred yards wide. Seems like it's pretty simple. Right. But then you put the Valley of sin in front of it and all of a sudden, you know, people figure out a way to screw it up. So, um, I don't think it's always necessary to have that super punishing, uh, finish. I, I would prefer to see that really difficult, um, par four at like 14 or 15 in the round because like most of us play if we're playing with our buddies we're playing match play we're usually not doing stroke play so you know let's say you're in the lead and you and you get to this you know really hard hole and you're going to get a stroke from your buddy and uh, you know you win the hole and you know and all of a sudden you know the match is on but you still got a few holes to play or if you lose that hole, like you might expect to lose it because it's a difficult hole, you still have three or four holes left to sort of make up and, and still do that where you have options. And so I don't think it's necessarily that they're all hard, um, but I think if you have an opportunity, if you execute a great shot where you might be able to, um, you know, to win a hole or, or to, to catch your opponent, that can be that can be fun golf and it can still work within the rhythm and the flow of the, of, of the round Jim is that something that that you would consider you know going forward or have you in the past and it's not necessarily they're difficult holes but they're swing holes you know it could be a it could be Mike it could be the the 13th hole at Kingsley you know that put that as the 16th hole in a match and you're going to get some dramatically different results day to day. 
I, you know, I think I, 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 the last three or four routings that I've done that I'm, if I said it too many times already, uh, I get to do before I'm, I check out of this world. I never thought about having, uh, forgive me for saying this, Mike, uh, Derek, forgive me for saying this word. It should be struck from the dictionary crescendo. <laughs> I don't think of a golf course. We, we do use that word a lot. Uh, us writers. do. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Sorry. You sorry. <laughs> you got uh, guilty. I, I'm not trying to build this excitement and it, it all finish at the end. I, I would never think that to be the case. I could name three or four golf courses that the final hole is not the crescendo. How's uh, Cypress Point sound for you? How about Augusta National? How about Shinnecock? You wouldn't say that those holes were the highlight of the golf course. And Augusta's 18th, sure, that walk up to the to the roaring crowd at, at Augusta. But, you know, is it the best hole at, at Augusta? No. Uh, it's the final hole. Should it have been the best hole? I don't know. That's subject to other people's criticism and critique. But I don't think of a routing as having to have a crescendo. And I think that match play, as Mike said, would probably be over by the time you got to the 18th hole, like St. Andrews. And so I would never think to route a golf course like that. But so maybe the tour would never be calling me to route one of their golf courses because I don't think about that scenario. I think about giving you the best possible golf holes in the best possible setting. And if the 18th hole, you're coming home and it's a good hole, but it doesn't highlight the crescendo, it, it wouldn't. I wouldn't lose any sleep over it. Is that fair, Mike? Is that fair, Derek? Oh, I think I think so, Jim. I mean, it's um, th- there's it's certainly like if you're doing if you have a tour event, you know, maybe maybe you got to have that, you know, that really difficult finish, you know, to sort of build the suspense and things like that. But Augusta does a pretty good job of, you know, of having half power holes that that really provide opportunity, and you know, that's the most exciting tournament to watch. Most of the time, so um, it, it's it's an so thinking about gray walls, and you know it's got this crazy rock outcroppings and sixty foot granite walls and um, some really insane sort of stuff going on. I mean, people were like, "How can you build a golf course?" You know, on this, and but it works. It is walkable. Uh, the front nine is more radical, more hilly, more rock. In the back nine, um, there's some pure sand in the South Valley, and it flows over. It's the best golf ground, um, I think, on the property, but it's less dramatic, you know. For um, but then, um, as you you play the the short shortish medium par four sixteenth, which has kind of a crazy rise up to a green that has two levels in a valley in the middle that's um, parallel with the line of play. And then 17 is a really short par three with a big crazy green on it. And then you turn and 
and AT&T, you see Lake Superior in the distance and sort of this V slot that you hit your drive through. And it's a big, crazy sort of funneling action. It's a, it, it looks really small, but there's a lot more room and it's a short par five. And the second half of the hole looks flat, but it's not really flat. It's pitching at five to 6%, just the ground falling. Um, but it's not the big radical, um, crazy sort of ground that you've, that you've been playing a lot of the golf course on. Uh, and the green is, um, you know, originally the concept, there was going to, there were going to be some bunkers, some fronting bunkers, and there are these big rock outcroppings behind the green. They're, you know, well behind the green. So the green, I didn't build any bunkers with it. And, but there's movement in the green. A lot of people can hit it in two. So, you know, an eagle's a chance. Birdies are, you know, you know, probably more than regular or whatever. But initially there was a lot of criticism and the, and the membership was like, well, you know, in your sketch, you know, you had, there were bunkers there. Aren't we going to put bunkers in, Mike? And I said, no, just think of it. You had this big kind of roller coaster ride and that's the glide out at the end. That's what, you know, it finished and it's sort of, it's the roller coaster finishing out in the end. And it's not necessarily, you know, smooth sailing. It's a, it's a hard, difficult sort of thing. And, one of the things that you know there was i'm like they were saying oh it should be a you know you should it should be a par four you know a tough par four finish i'm like fine change it to a par four i don't really care it's still a good hole and it's and it's you know it completes the round and you can turn around and you know start the start it over again but um then um the uh, the green uh, the golf the, the green chairman told me he's a really good player and he's won the club championship and his father won it like seven times or something, and he got some stats. And the the championship flight and the club championship, the average score for the 18th hole was almost right exactly at 5.0. <laughs> yep. So I said, yep. so it's not really that easy, is it? Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> the best players in the club are still, you know, they're still making par. So. Yep, yep. And Derek, when I think of of, of holes and, and and how they finish in the routing, I you know two of my, my favorite golf courses, Garden City Golf Club and Pasa Temple, end on par threes, and so Mackenzie, uh, Devereaux, Emmett, Walter, Travis, when they worked on those golf courses, I, I, they didn't think that that had to be uh, that had had to end in in this some somewhat difficult uh, setting. Uh, they finished on a par three at Potsdam Temple and a par three at Garden City, and most likely the match was over by then. And so all is all is good, and they built the best hole they could build. That's all I would continue to do: find you the best holes so that when you play it, you'll want to come back time and time again. What, I just, William, I, oh sorry, no, I just think that I just think that the scorecard. You can't let it dictate your life. Go find the holes and, and, and let's see what the scorecard ends up being. As, as Mike DeVries said, two par threes, two par fives of St. Andrews. Uh, I could go on and on and find the best holes. Don't think about that scorecard too much. That's a you know another great course, and this is a really good example, is William Flynn's Cascades course. In uh, in Hot Springs, 
uh, Virginia, and that finishes on a par three. But it also has a has a main highway that cuts through the property, so so um, you have to cross that for the second, third, and fourth hole, and um, and then you have to cross it again. And it's a you know it's you'd think that would be really disjointed, and it's in this mountain. It's not it's not returning nines, uh, but it's one of the most interesting. Uh, routings out there and really, really cool golf course. Um, William Flynn doesn't get enough respect, I don't think, you know, just in general um, for the brilliant stuff that he did. He was really good at um, sort of riverlands, lowlands that had sort of heaving, you know, levees on them. And he, he used those in really interesting ways. Uh, the Country Club in Cleveland's a, a good example of that. Um, the 17th hole kind of heaves over, and is it the 14th or 15th hole where you play down, and if you don't quite hit a good enough drive, 14th, 14th, love it. Yep, you can't love get it. your you can't get your second shot over that that next that next sort of hill to get a good I view of the green. I love it's, that. Hole. Yeah, really, really good. And so, Derek, what and is that? What Cascades is that? ends in ends in a, a five five three finish too. Yeah. So that's again <laughs> breaking all but, the rules, baby. Mm-hmm. But see, Derek, what is that? You, your question to Mike and I earlier was, "What have you learned from now, uh, from, from then and now?" That was my question. Yeah. Look at how many golf courses we've referenced for to find base to find a base that it's okay. Uh, the third, the uh, 18th hole of Garden City with the par three. It's okay. He talks about Flynn. He talks about uh, Mike. Talks about all these other places. We keep constantly referring to golf courses that we've explored during our 20, 30, 40 years of of golfing. Um, um, uh, challenge, the challenge to find these great golf courses, and we use that for our base. I don't mean to speak for Mike, but I I say to myself. We keep using these references. We keep going back to what worked the 14th at uh, uh, at the Cleveland uh, Golf Club, a country club. You just keep using these references. And the more I see, the more Mike sees, the more we have a solid foundation to work from. It, it, it solves some of our problems. And I won't speak for Mike anymore on this, but it solves some of my problems it, it gives me a sense of, of place where I need to be. And you just keep learning. You don't stop learning. Every, every day you learn. I mean, that, that's the, you know, I mean, to me, that's part of the, that's some of the fun stuff about doing restoration renovation work. If you, if there's a golf course that was done by Willie Park Jr. or Flynn or McKenzie or Ross or Rayner or whoever, there's there's cool stuff in the ground there if it hasn't really you know that you can you can find especially one that's been just sort of sitting there benevolent neglect they haven't really done anything they haven't tried to fix anything right those things are cool because most of the time you're just trying to like reclaim green pads and and see uh see what you know what was there because it's all really relevant still today and it still makes a still makes for good compelling golf particularly for the average club player and derek to think in the in the routing we taught we wanted to talk about routing of the golf course we just got started we just got the tip of the iceberg 
of all of the things that go into a routing. And we didn't even talk about bunkers. We didn't even talk about turning the hole. We didn't even talk about uh, the, the ground contours. I mean, the things that you have to cover in a routing, you can't do in a day, you can't do in a week. It takes time and time and time and time again of walking the land, looking at the land to find the best golf course. We just we just touched the tip of the iceberg on the routing. Are, are we stopping? I thought we were going to go on for another couple hours. <laughs> this is the first in a, in a year-long That's series. It's going to be a whole new. <laughs> it's like Bob Dylan's never-ending tour. We're just going to keep this going. I, I want, if you guys will indulge me, I want to ask you one one last question, and then we'll sign off. You were t- we were talking about the 18th hole, and Jim, you mentioned the 18th at Augusta and the role it plays in a routing or a golf course. And Mike, you talked about um, gray walls. I'm connecting a lot of thoughts, and I just want to get a, a straight opinion from you. You can even say thumbs up or thumbs down. We talked about Pete Dye. Whistling straights, 18th hole, yes or no? No. <laughs> it's not great. I mean, it's it's sort of anticlimactic. But I mean okay. – but- and, and, and the context is also the Ryder Cup, if it's played, will be at Whistling Straits this fall. Right. It is a right. match play hole, the 18th hole. Does it, it Architecturally, you can speak out of one way, and then there's also the, the context of a tournament, I guess. It's, it's, dis, it's well, I'm basing that on the PGAs and the Ryder Cups there previously and stuff, and it's, it's disappointing compared to a lot of the other really cool, great stuff that's there. You know, and I, I love Pete's work because I love he's always trying something, and sometimes it's really successful, and sometimes it's sort of like yeah, you know. So it's not it's not like it's the worst hole, but it's not it's not it's not great either. And I it goes back to that same old thing, Derek. If I'd looked at the four holes previous to the 18th at Whistling Straits, I'd rather go play the four holes previous to the to, to the 18th. And yes, everybody's going to say you're coming in from from Lake Michigan and it's anticlimactic because you've been playing along the water's edge. That's that's part of it. But Pete's got some unbelievable holes sitting out there on uh, 14, 15, 16, 17. And when you get to 18, you know, to me, it's not my favorite hole, but I understand they got to get back to the clubhouse. And so, you know. They had to get back to the clubhouse at Cypress Point. They had to get back to the clubhouse at you name the golf course along the ocean or along the water. So I think of the other four previous to that are being some of my favorites. The 18th, I wouldn't say it is my favorite. So, Jim, you just – I'm sorry to interrupt, but um, you brought up the 18th at Cypress Point. Yay or nay? I'll, I guess that I'm going to take Derek's question. <laughs> Yay or nay, you know, doesn't 18th in Cyprus look like 18th at Augusta? Plays the same way to me. Yeah. Dog leg right uphill. So, you know, I always, I, I, it's, it's sort of, it's strange because, you know, it just feels like it's not, it's, it's not what you just did, particularly with the pinnacle kind of coming out 15, 16, 17. But I, this was maybe, oh, I don't know, 12, 13 years ago. 
and I was out there and Jim Langley, the great old pro that was at Cypress Point for so many years. Great they man. Have, great they, man. They, fantastic. He's just a, a gentleman, A1. And um, they, had a, they had just like 1,500 photographs of the golf course. I mean, it's amazing the trove of, of, you know, historical evidence that they had. And I asked him because we were sort of on the back there and I was like, you know, was there any, was there ever any idea of, of the green coming right below the clubhouse there above 16 T because you would have had the grove um, that you would still be cutting through like, you know, the cypress trees and stuff, but it, you would have had, you would have been sitting on the green there and you would have looked out at the ocean at 16, whereas you're sort of tucked on the side and um, um, you know, whether you like it or don't like the 18th hole, the current 18th hole, I always thought that would be kind of a very interesting finish there. Yep. Yep. Playing straight away instead of a dog leg. Yeah. Slight, probably a slight, probably a slight dog leg left a little bit. Yeah. A little bit, a little bit. Yeah. 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 I, I know exactly what you're talking about. I walked up there, but you know, Derek, is anybody not going to play Cypress if offered because they have to play the 18th hole? I doubt it. Uh, and it, so, yeah, I mean, it's it's really I, I, damaged its its reputation and its standing <laughs> in golf, hasn't it? Yeah, I think it's it's out of the top 100 now, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. You know, I think we just pointed something out. Nobody realized what a bad hole it was. I hope we didn't cause irreparable damage. <laughs> Well, it, it, you're you're teeing off on the ocean, on the ocean's edge. You're coming up playing a dogleg right, just like Augusta. You know, it. I'm, I'm coming home. It's one of the greatest walks in golf. I, I'm not going to lose any sleep over that. Home. No, as you said, you you got to get back. Why not just got to get go back straight line? Get there. <laughs> yeah, and and when you look at the stretch of holes at, at Kohler, you're playing along the water's edge. And you make that turn inland. You you got to go home and enjoy the uh, enjoy the fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen at uh, at Whistling Straits, and then you're going to go home. Uh, happy to be out there playing. You know, not going to lose any sleep over it. And that's the and that's the great thing about it, Derek. Is you know that Jim mentioned that, and then that just made me that just made me think about that conversation that I had with Jim Langley and stuff. And this goes back to way earlier in a conversation. You don't know what the thought process was or, or who said something about this or that, you know, why they put the 18th. Maybe that's just, maybe that's just McKenzie's predilection there to, you know, have this dog leg right uphill uh, second shot. Um, but it would have been cool to have been a fly on the wall and sort of <laughs> said, "Hey, what about the green over here?" You know that. Yeah. I mean, those are the things that you know. This is this is the rabbit hole that Jim and I get into, um, and it, you know that's fun. That that's what's really interesting about about what we get to do. We're we're very fortunate. And Derek, you want to talk about the never-ending podcast? Let's talk about the routing of Cypress right. Point, <laughs> the origins. And, and and Derek, think about this. Critics, we all have them. Uh, uh, and they're welcome to do, be critiques of, of, of golf courses and, and what uh, architects, golf course designers, builders do. But when somebody critiques a hole, they 
they just fix one hole. And it's easy to just fix one hole, but now that affects the 17 others sometimes or the five or six before and after. So when critiques are made and critics make mention of a hole, it's one hole. And sometimes that one hole, Mike DeVries just talked about it. He didn't get to build one of his best holes at Cape Wickham because it affected the flow. So that's what people got to remember. The whole scheme of how this routing came about, again, we just don't have enough time to talk about all of the intricacies of a routing. Well, you're right. We don't have enough time. Maybe we can get together and do this again sometimes. Mike, every time you come on, it's a great conversation. We can count on you for that. Thanks for doing the podcast, and uh, good luck to you on your travels. Thanks, Mike. Yeah. We, I, I really enjoyed it. I'm, I'm looking forward to someday seeing Cape Wickham and, uh, and all the stuff that you do. Just keep, keep it up. It's cool to look at. It's, it's, fun, to, it's fun to go play. Well, thanks. I appreciate it. It's really, it's really fun to talk about this stuff. It's always, it's always fun to to talk with Jim. We we every once in a while we we call one or the other out of the blue, and that's it always right. seems to evolve into like a longer conversation. That's right. And that's right. always good, which is fantastic. So it's always yeah, I appreciate good. Appreciate it. Really Thank fun. Thank you, Mike. Thank you. Well, okay, Jim. What a kind of a comp just like routings that was a complex and it was a discussion with with mike it took us on a journey i thought just like a good routing does and i want to got a headache i want to say that one of my favorite things is something that you said is and i don't know if we categorize this as advice or or maybe it is advice and it's throw out the scorecard that that yes. concept would you know if if golf as an industry could have embraced that concept starting around 1965. Um, I think we'd, I think we'd look at golf course design and golf courses a little bit differently. Now I think we, I think definitely we'd see a lot more variety. I think we'd see uh, a, a greater appreciation for golf courses of the, of that 30 year period following that. I mean, things would look a lot different now. And I think just that concept of not worrying about pars and yardages and balancing things was a, an opportunity missed. We got golf architecture and development, especially really kind of got on this, this narrow focus track. It got, it got narrow because we were relying on the scorecard to tell us what was good. If we looked at a scorecard and it was balanced. And if we looked at a scorecard and it was par 72. And if we looked at a scorecard and the par threes were separated and you started off with a very easy hole, a short par four, but you ended up with a strong par four or a strong par five to finish. The scorecard dictated the golf course. And so when you let the scorecard dictate the golf course, all of a sudden, golf courses all started to look alike, no matter the land that they were laid upon. And so that's what I meant by getting rid of the scorecard, that if you want variety, you have to throw out the mathematical balance that the scorecard gives you. And so in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, we were conditioned to have 4, 4, 3, 5, 4, 3, 5. Or, or some combination so that the, the par fives were stretched apart, the par threes were stretched apart, they weren't back-to-back. -back. And so 
mathematically, the outcome was going to be the same because the scorecard was the same. And so every scorecard being of the balance portrayed a golf course that had that same look. And that's the part that I meant by taking and throwing away the scorecard because in order to have variety, you have to find the best holes and don't let the balance and don't let the par make you make decisions that you don't want to make. The other thing I wanted to point out, and we don't get to say this too often on the podcast, these conversations we're having are are so rangy. Uh, they, they go down rabbit holes. We talk about things that are hard to define, high concepts, I think. Maybe I'm overstating that. But we did get <laughs> we did get one definitive answer. Uh, uh, somebody on Twitter named Sam asked both you and Mike if you ever design courses with routings that contemplate the home stretch of holes so that they would be interesting in a match. And if, if you do anything different uh, on those last four, five, six holes for a, the, the purpose of, of scoring or uh, making something more interesting in a one-on-one situation, and both you and Mike said unequivocally, no, it's not a consideration. So if, if nothing else ever happens on this podcast, we at least opened and shut one question Slam the door and got a got a some finality. And the, in the finality answer. is that your the competition is just starting to heat up as you make the turn seven eight nine ten eleven twelve. You've 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 gauged how good your opponent is. You've learned his game. He's learned your game. It's a match between the two. It's not a scorecard. It's a match between the two. And so the opening holes are learning about your opponent. It gets hot and heated uh, on this, as you make the turn. And by holes 14, 13, 14, 15, the, the decision's almost starting to be made. Uh, I'm three down. I'm four down. Or it's, it's, it could be neck and neck. But rarely did a match go to all 18 holes. It rarely did. And if it did, you'd ha- you'd see more match play on TV, wouldn't you? Yeah, that's a pretty good point. <laughs> so, so if you don't see the matches end on 18 or 17, then you would say to yourself, Golden Age of Designers would say, you know, 18th hole, 17th hole, not that important because the match I played at, with old Tom Morris or the match I played with Alan Robertson, uh, we were done by 14 or 15. So the, the, it was skewed towards those holes being of, of most importance and, and 17 and 18 really not being. But I believe that Mike and I both stressed that we're trying to find the best holes possible. Every architect, right. every builder, designer is trying to find the best holes possible. And the golf course will tell you if you've done a good job. And sometimes a scorecard and sometimes match play is irrelevant to the best holes possible. And I think that's all that Mike and I were trying to say. You know, I, I'd asked both you and Mike what your personal favorite routings were. And it occurs to me that if you ask anybody that question, the answer you get is going to tell you a lot about their proclivities and the things that they like in a golf course and a golf experience. Now, that seems kind of obvious, but if you think about routings fitting different categories, I think 
you kind of start to understand that that people have different desires when they when they play golf. For instance, if somebody says they like uh, Pebble Beach or you know a Lynx Course Troon, you know those are essentially kind of out and back routings. I don't know exactly what that tells you about them, but th- there's something maybe traditional about them. And they like to go out to a point and, and come back, and, and that's favorable. There are different types of routings. There are the, the we'd mentioned like the multiple act routing at Friars Head or Bandon Trails, where you start off in, an, in one environment. At Bandon Trails, it's the dunes. At Friars Head, you get down into the open field. Then you get up into transition dunes at Friars Head. You come in and out of these different acts. At Bandon Trails, you have the meadow, you have the upland holds, then you come back and finish in the dunes again. That Some people love Bandon Trails because of that reason. You're, you're switching. You're switching in different into different environments. There are places like uh, we just um, spoke in the intro about Ballyneal. Those are sand hills, Ballyneal, Gamble Sands. Those are journeys. You're going out across vast landscapes. That affects some people certain ways. My favorite routings, actually, Jim, are what I call labyrinthine routings. Those are like mid-pines, where you, you're in a, a, in a smaller enclosed space, and you're turning, and then you cross over at a juncture that you were at before, and then you go off in a different direction. You can almost get lost. You're kind of disoriented, but they're smaller, more intimate properties like Pacific Dunes. And I realize as I think about these things that some of my favorite golf courses deliver that particular experience. I appreciate all golf courses. I appreciate a, a, a course that, you know, like Rock Creek Cattle Company in Montana, huge, vast loops that cover an amazing amount of ground. I love that, but I really like to be in those small environments where you're turning and you're crossing and you're flipping and and you kind of get that sense of disorientation like Pacific Dunes. And that's something that, 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 that Tom and Renaissance and you really nailed at Pacific Dunes. And when we define or we try to talk about why we like things like that, that word intimacy always comes up. Derek, you talk about Pacific Dunes, and, and you're talking about a place that I love. It's dear to my heart. So dear to my heart that uh, over 180 days I spent on site making sure that the, 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 ending would be, the ending would be just right. And when I talked about the looping at, at uh, Riviera, I, I likened that to... Uh, what I had told a reporter who was interviewing us about Pacific Dunes, and I said, the routing is is looping. And what I mean by that is when you play Pacific Dunes, the first three holes take you from the inland dunes out to the ocean. And then the next five, six, seven holes take you back into the dunes. And then 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13 take you out to the ocean. And then you're going back into the dunes and out to the ocean. And that is the beauty, that is the genius of Pacific Dunes, and that all those acts or scenes that you like in in your golf, Pacific Dunes gives that to you. And the beauty in which you enjoy the walk, I got to tell you this story, and I've said it a couple times, there's this, I remember walking in from the 13th hole of Pacific Dunes, and they had preview play, and there was a, a, a group of, of people, uh, couples, uh, two men, two, uh, two women, and they were playing golf, and they were on the second hole, uh, second hole at Pacific Dunes. 
and they were playing the preview play. And I walked in and I came up over the dune on three tees. And they said, where are you coming in from? And I said, well, I'm coming in from the from the ocean hole. So there's going to be more golf course uh, out on the ocean. You'll see those next year when you come back. And the lady turned to me and she said, I don't even play golf. And I have enjoyed the walk on this golf course. It's so beautiful. It looks like nothing has ever been touched. And that to me was like, uh, a, a compliment that could never be beaten, a compliment that could never be topped. This woman never played golf, but the walk that she was enjoying, the beauty that she was in, in, enjoying as part of her, 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 her journey was like, God, this lady doesn't even play golf, and she thinks it's the prettiest place she's ever been, like a park. If she only knew what we had to do to get it this way, that was a compliment that I said, this place is beyond belief. It can't get any better than this. And that's that 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 thing that you talk about, that routing that you know it's right. That's what Pacific, Pacific Dunes does in spades. It just keeps giving it to you and giving it to you and giving it to you after every hole. And that's why people like it. And the other golf courses offer the same journey, but I'm attached to Pacific Dunes because it was the first golf course I got to build after trying to learn all about Lynx Golf in my previous past touring Lynx Golf. It was a chance to invoke that what I learned walking and playing Lynx Golf, taking a routing and make it the best golf course possible. And that journey that you talk about, it, it, it's, it's at its pinnacle at Pacific Dunes for me. Not for everybody, but for me, it's the pinnacle. Obviously, for you, it was just as good. I think you can, when I think of Pacific Dunes, I think in musical terms, and I'm not a classical music scholar by any means, but I, I think of Mozart. Mozart was known for melodies, whether it was a, a minuet or uh, a, a small concerto or a grand orchestra. He had these beautiful places of melodies with, with notes played off each other. He understand the harmonies and melodies, and that's what Pacific Dunes is all about. It's all about those little melodies and those runs and that ability of, of everything to mesh together. Other golf courses are more like or more symphonic, hit larger Beethoven notes. You know, there's that Sturman drum. Uh, other places like Bannon Trails is more like a romantic piece of music like Debussy where you have all these different colors and soft tones and then loud tones and these kind of coming in and out of these evocations. So Pacific Dunes, though, to me is is Mozart. And I, I in the classical music sense, I don't think there's a much higher compliment than Mozart. Well, you know, I, I'm not a classical person. To me, smooth jazz, that's what it's all about for me. And that you can place go jazz. Is, that place is smooth, man. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely some jazz analogies. I don't know if I'd go smooth jazz. I'd be more like, let's go maybe bebop, you know. <laughs> well, and you know, the, the thing about Pacific Dunes, the thing, agreed, Miles Davis, the thing about Pacific Dunes is, is you know, it's it's enjoyed by a lot of people. And, and you know, I, I don't know that we could have done any better. But can I read another quote from you from C.B. McDonald? Yeah, let's let's go out on C.B. McDonald. That's never a bad idea. I just think about this all the time. And this is a quote from McDonald. The ideal first class golf links has yet to be selected and the course laid out in America. This is McDonald talking before he built his golf course. 
No course can be called first class without less than 18 holes. A sandy soil sufficiently rich to make turf is the best. Long Island is a natural lynx. A first-class course can be only made in time. It must develop the proper distance between the holes, the shrewd placing of bunkers and other hazards, the perfecting of the putting greens. All must be evolved in a process and growth, and it requires steady and patience. You see, Pacific Dunes, I think we've done that. And yet, McDonald talks about it must develop, and I think it developed as we built it. But I also think did McDonald say that the golf course would get better the more he played with it? Did McDonald make the National Golf Links of America a good golf course, and then he played with it even more? I'm wondering if that quote starts to delve into that, and I'm wondering if you're ever done with a golf course. I debate that all the time. Well, your your mentor rarely was ever, and I'm talking about Pete Dye, he was rarely ever finished with a golf course. <laughs> he was rarely finished with the golf course. So he, he has no problem answering that question. And you know, to me, I think to myself, is it the end? Well, is that quote by McDonald, did he mean there should be an end? Or should you continue to modify and develop and make it even better? It requires steady and patience. It's a, I mean, that's a great timeless golf question. How much did McDonald tinker with national, you know, over the subsequent years? Oh, he, he, there was, I've seen photos of different holes out there, like the short. There was a time when the short had planking built around it. And right. now today it doesn't. So did he tinker with it? Did he steady it? Did he allow it to grow on him? and have patience to decide what was the right class, first-class golf course. To me, Pacific Dunes is done. It is the finality. As you said, there is an end to a good book, a good movie, a musical a score. But McDonald says it requires steady and patience. Did he mean that year, or did he mean 20 years from now? There have been a, a number of, not maybe not a lot, but there have been instances in, in history where you have the Donald Ross at number two who had the luxury and the ability to tinker and to continue to mold it into a, uh, an evolving vision. Now, I guess the question is, did McDonald, did Ross do the tinkering because they weren't able to get it exactly they wanted the way they wanted initially because the technology wasn't there or because of a whole host of other issues. Did they always have something, a final finished product in mind that they were always trying to get to, or were they tinkering uh, because they didn't have a a finished product in mind and they just kept seeing little things that they wanted to adjust? And that's the question I ask myself all the time. Are you ever done? But in thinking of the routing, of thinking of the routing, is the routing when you're done, when you made the decision to go with it, the only thing left to do is to tinker with the greens, bunkers, hazards, and, and related activities. The routing is solid. 
you're comfortable, you would never change the routing. And maybe that's what makes the routing so important that the number of chapters has been written, but now the words have to be molded into the chapters because you can't change the chapters, but maybe you can change the words. Well, that's certainly true in in a golf course routing. It's it's really hard in most cases to, you know, slip a new seventh or twelfth hole into, you know, it can be done in some places, but generally that that's not gonna work. So you pretty much gotta nail the routing up front, don't you? You have to nail the routing up front. And sometimes there's more land available to you that you didn't have originally, and routings are changed. Plenty of routings are changed, but because land has become available or roads have been put in or, or, or uh, you know, uh, uh, lakes or, or highways or whatever have been added. But if the chapters have been written and you're solid with it, all you can do is play with the words. And you see the problem with routings is you can talk about them forever and ever and ever. Well, you can, but let's stop for now, at least take a pause and wrap up volume five of The Salon with Mike DeVries. I, I, we could have Mike back on tomorrow and, and pick it up and go for another hour or whatever, <laughs> couldn't we? Hell, you and I could go on for another hour. <laughs> we, can have, we could have Mike, we could have Bill, we could have Ben, we could have countless other great golf course architects and designers who, who love routings and doing routings. And, you know... That's the key, finding what's right, finding and, and, and making the, the final selection and going with it. And, and, Derek, being able to defend what you laid out. Our, in our next episode, we'll talk about golf course criticism. <laughs> <laughs> and routings and criticisms of routings. Criticisms of routings and then criticisms. Of, okay, Jim, that was a lot of fun. Can't wait till the next time we do it. Let me know. Thank you. Uh, let me know um, if you don't sleep tonight thinking about more routings. <laughs> I'm tortured <laughs> enough. I'm going to try to turn it off. I agree. Thank you. 